Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dave Clay. <laughs> if you can't tell, uh, I have laryngitis, and uh, I'm going to apologize in advance that my voice um, certainly isn't everything it was. <laughs> Hopefully, it will one day return to be. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, I sound like I don't know. <laughs> of an alias or something. So I'm walking through the mall and we're heading to a department store. Now, I have to say malls are entering interesting places for me because I get to observe all these different people. Uh, malls aren't quite what they used to be. They're maybe not the fave place for most people to go these days. Uh, But it still attracts a bit of a crowd, and with that, pretty diverse, not only in terms of culture, lifestyles, age, just across the board, pretty diverse. And uh, I have to confess, I am an individual who enjoys watching people. Uh, I (laughs) learn an awful lot, certainly about other people. <clears throat> which it probably should be about to begin with if I uh, were doing that in the most empirical or scientifically empirical terms. It shouldn't really be about me. But I got to confess, I'm constantly kind of comparing myself just to kind of put on some different personalities, <laughs> whether it's manifest again in the way people dress or their mannerisms or the things they seem to like to do. I still enjoy that. So as much as, again, it's about those others, it's also about me. Now, <laughs> that's part A. Part B of my mall experience, though, we're heading forward to, par- and to a department store, actually a clothing store. And uh, as I go in, I notice all the mirrors. <laughs> and then I begin to notice it's really hard at times to differentiate me from the people around me because every time I would look around or look up, uh, I couldn't initially tell if that were a mirror or that were me. <laughs> that should maybe be more modestly so about other people, but when you notice a mirror, you start to, again, not only see yourself in other people, but you see yourself, maybe not as accurately as you would uh, maybe hope mirrors to distort things a bit, but certainly more directly, it's not me via them, it's me via me. <laughs> and then you begin to do that, again, comparison thing at a whole other level. Uh, so I quit there and uh, got out of the mall and uh, thank God <laughs> didn't have to give much more consideration to either me or how I was dressed or really just went home and hung out at the house and watched TV. And then I began to compare myself to those people on television. Insights, the power of we, feeling as if your partner is part of you could lead to heightened sexual satisfaction. And uh, this would be out of Psychology Today, June of 2022. Uh, The article was written by Grant H. Brenner, M.D. 
Emotional closeness often leads to more satisfying long-term relationships. But some researchers have argued that since closeness can breed over-familiarity and habituation, it may not help foster a satisfying sex life within those relationships. A recent study challenges this theory, suggesting that feeling like a we may indeed boost sexual satisfaction while helping couples better cope with sexual challenges. In the study, published in the Journal of Sex Research, more than 3,000 partnered adults rated their inclusion of others in the self, short IOS, that is how much they felt that their sense of self included their partner or how much they adopted a we perspective when thinking about the relationships. They also rated their sexual satisfaction, severity of any sexual problems, and their degree of love for their partner, among other sex and relationship-related measurements. Participants who more strongly included their partner in their sense of self, that is, who showed higher levels of, again, IOS or we, were significantly more sexually satisfied. Feeling more in love with one's partner was also positively related to sexual satisfaction. Excuse me. Couples with high IOS or we were not immune from sexual problems, the data showed, yet they tended to be significantly less distressed by them than couples who were less intertwined. This was especially true for women. Sexual problems are not uncommon phenomenon in long-term relationships, explains the study's author, Laura Petrus, or Petrus, a PhD student at the University Medical Center Hamburg-Eppendorf in Germany. These findings, however, suggest that in close and loving relationships, these issues don't necessarily have to be a distressing experience or be associated with dampened satisfaction. What can couples do to bolster their sense of closeness and perhaps improve their sex life in the process? Says Beatrice or Beatrice, it's very simple. Spend time with your partner. Pursuing activities that focus on self-expansion, like attending a special event together, has been found in past research to impress, excuse me, to improve IOS, or that feeling of we. Do something that's novel for one or both partners, Petrus or Petrus suggests sharing in the excitement that comes with new experiences could help fan the flames of sexual desire. Insights, the power of we feeling as if your partner is part of you could lead to heightened sexual satisfaction. Grant H. Brenner, MD, Psychology Today, June of 2022. So you may think this whole podcast is going to be about 
<laughs> sexual satisfaction. And it could be, <laughs> although I'm not sure that uh, anybody should necessarily find themselves particularly sexually attractive, although that's probably part of all of that imaging and self-image and that comparison and trying to determine or reaffirm or establish or grow or modify or whatever, however you want, whatever angle you want to take on that, that would lend us to look at others as with that comparison in mind or even in the mirror. But I'd like to turn the article more toward the closeness of the couple, <clears throat> again, excuse me, and the idea of love. And, of course, as I've been describing it, it all has a self-orientation or an I-orientation rather than being so much about we. But my pitch today really is going to come back to that notion that you really don't know I until you see yourself through the lens of a we. Maybe it is with, in regards to relationships, the necessity of a we. But generally speaking, when we go out and find partners, whether they're most intimately significant other partners that have the dimension of a sexual relationship, or even individuals we work with, individuals we recreate with, individuals that we choose to hang out with as friends, it's most likely that we're looking <laughs> in the mirror. We're looking around us and doing that comparison thing that I was trying to capture at the beginning of the podcast when I went to the mall. So it all begins with this idea of self-love. Now, we hear a lot also these days, let me bring this into the conversation, this thought about narcissism and the idea how deadly narcissists are or how dysfunctional narcissists are, or how awful narcissists are, narcissists are. But in a very simple, basic way, I don't know anyone who would argue that narcissism isn't also about self-love. It's just <laughs> excluding the we, the relationship the part of it being with others. There's a relationship piece, but it's usually with yourself. For those of you who know of the origins of the term narcissist, it's uh, to be found in Greek mythology, Narcissus. And the long and short of the story was he was beautiful. Could be handsome, but that sounds a little bit gender specific. So we'll just call him beautiful. And in short, he could not find, he was a god, the offspring of a god, but he couldn't find anybody else that he loved as much as himself and uh, his beauty. Now, arguably so, again, that already sounds like the origins and probably is the etiology of the dysfunction. Because in the end, Narcissus looks in a pool of water and discovers his own image mirrored back to him and says, that's the one I want to love. The trouble with that, though, is that even if you do relationship with yourself fairly well, and we all do, 
we all have internal dialogue conversations or at least the potential for that i would again i would find it doubtful that anyone hasn't had at least a bit of self-talk or self-dialogue or had some aspect of appreciation for the nature of how they relate to themselves. But at the same time, because it's you talking to you, you really don't get good feedback. Maybe a mirror is a little bit better than in your own head. Because uh, <laughs> in your own head, you may think you're gorgeous. You may think you're handsome. You may think you're beautiful. You may think this looks really well. And then to prove the point, my point, all of a sudden look in a mirror and say, oh, that's ugly. That's horrible. That's terrible. So mirrors are a bit better. So go to a department store or a clothing store. I'm doubtful too that everyone has a mirror that there's not a single it's doubtful that there is a single person that doesn't have a mirror in their house why because this is what we do this is part of identity this is part of keeping track of who we are and what we're wanting or desiring willing to communicate of our image to others which again isn't far off from a narcissist they're all about image uh, unfortunately again they're not looking through a mirror they're just operating off of some sort of internal mechanism that is extremely distorted by their subjectivity. And many would speculate, really, narcissism implies a bit of dysfunction even in, again, it's dynamic. Maybe it's the etiology as well. We could make those two things the same in this way. That unless you've got at least enough ego strength or you have at least enough uh, a sense of who you are to go out and experiment in relationships or take a risk on a relationship with others, there's probably some that would prefer just to stay inside the house and have no relationship with anyone except themselves. Or if they have one, it's through some further distortion of that or some insulation of artificial a virtual sort of dimension, social media, whatever. But you have to take a risk and chance and expose yourself. But most believe that that's where narcissists again begin to fail when they leave childhood. And that's where identity really is established, mostly because of two primary sort of considerations. One is the machinery has to be there psychologically, and that takes a bit of time to develop. Consciousness, conscious awareness, self-esteem, self-awareness, an awareness of self. Up to a certain point, kids are just extensions of their parents. It could be sad. And social learning and modeling being what it is, the primary way to figure out who you are, it's all given to you up to that point of awareness, self-awareness, by your parents. And to some extent, to be like them is probably complimentary, <laughs> no pun intended, in more ways than one. Not only does it make it easier for you to get along with the social system you're born into, which has obvious adaptive advantages, survival, being one of those, but it gets makes it better. People get along better unless the dysfunction is so awful, unless there is either absence completely of that kind of input from the parental figures, you don't get any feedback, you don't get any input, and so you're left to doing it on your own, or it is so, so 
fraught with, filled with itself, self-loathing, hatred, disdain, dysmorphia, dissonance, all those D words, that parents sometimes never work through. Now, I could probably make the case that there's some genetics in that, but most of that, again, we see within a social context, people who do what I do for a living. And the theories seem to support that as much, the research supports the theories, it seems to be supported, that viewpoint. Nature, nurture, but for the most part, nurture really refines it. And certainly speaks to our social dimension, because that is what that is, relevant to others, related to others, relationship, others more so than even ourselves. So this idea, though, that if you've got really, really messed up parents, it's going to affect how you see yourself. And when you get to the point of then having self-awareness, you're still usually not out of the house or completely removed or ready yet to be completely removed. Hopefully there's not abuse. That could be going on as much as negligence. That's awful pain that communicates a very direct message of dysfunction, hatred, self-loathing. Why? Because your parents, when somebody's mean like that, you're left to try to figure out why. And most people, again, tend to either believe they're bad or something's wrong with them or they live in shame and guilt that's imposed. <laughs> Be mean to even animals and uh, you destroy them. Children, you destroy them. <clears throat> we don't want that. It's generationally then passed down. Again, maybe there's a genetic link, but again, mostly social. Social learning. One generation passes it down to the next. So this idea of then really being able to love someone else, especially getting back to the notion of narcissism, it is about learning self-love but it's also about all kinds of bad experiences with loving other people, which is the way we learn about ourselves. But when we get those awful messages or no message at all, if you survive at all, you have to learn to love yourself. <laughs> but you can't trust other people. So most narcissists, at least in dynamic etiology, comes from that kind of a situation circumstance and most people who are truly diagnosably narcissistic have an awful time risking excuse me again opening up to other people so when people do open up to others though they may not be to this extent narcissists or narcissists narcissists as with Greek mythology, the idea, though, is it all starts there. And those that have gotten a little more or much more are much then better at reaching out to others. But because of socialization, we still tend to be attracted to people who we're familiar with, even if we've had good experiences as a child, even if the socialization in that way was adaptive, with this idea of love, the highest order of relationship. And for the most part then, the notion of caring for other people, not selfish, but the I moving it to we, a we context, 
We've begun to learn that. And in that same way, being nice to other people is sort of like not only reciprocally, then opening the door for us to learn about other people being nice to us or how those two things correlate with that idea of reciprocity, relationship, reciprocity in relationship and mind. But we're starting to understand, oh, this works better if I take care of another person, they take care of me, uh, I don't have to depend on me, uh, again, just from a very evolutionary sort of standpoint, adaptivity, adaptability, two working together are better than one. So it's real base sort of premises in this that go to not only satisfaction, contentment, but also just success in living life. You're more likely to succeed in significant relationships with others, with those in place, and with that not only a single significant other, but maybe several significant others uh, that can be expanded to include family and eventually, hopefully, some sense of community. If it gets too large, it starts to fall apart a bit or disintegrate a, a bit this effect. But we surround ourselves with people who are like us because that's adaptive. But yet, even in the best of scenarios, <laughs> loving another person like you can be somewhat challenging because they're occupying the same space and vying for the same resources as you. And sometimes it's very difficult when you feel like you need something to put somebody else first. Again, that's a bit of a skill set. It's a paradigm, it's a commitment that you make in life to live life in certain terms, definitions, ways, uh, love others, love yourself. They go hand in hand. Again, the message of the podcast. But when I do couples counseling or relationship counseling, generally speaking, I'm addressing then somebody who has gone out and picked somebody got into a relationship, whether it's so conscious or not, that's another question. A lot of times people are not at any level of real true awareness of the disorder, the dysfunction, or they're about to fall in love with or get into a love relationship with somebody who's so much like them. Even though they may appear different, the differences maybe speaks more to the fact that you've got a mom and a dad, or at least a mom and a mom, or a dad and a dad. There's usually two parents whichever way you want to define it these days. And their personalities are going to be somewhat different, and they have to be at least different enough to maintain the sense of relationship because eyes turning to we's, if you were all one and the same, you'd almost dispense with the notion of relationship. And we know we can't do that. That is just in, in us. Again, I'll, I'll put that in that category genetically. Speaking, we are social creatures. We are designed for relationship. Diversity brings creativity. <laughs> Get the mall experience. It makes me think out of the box. I see things in different ways, even as I apply it to myself. Which again, sounds a bit selfish, but in that way, it's what makes life fun. It's what makes life exciting. And though, again, there's potential for conflict, that in and of itself 
just seems to offer opportunities to reinforce how do we work through this, realizing that we both have something to gain. And generally speaking, getting back to the notion of couples counseling, relationship counseling, the stuff people come to see me about is stuff that's inside of themselves or would be a thing, stuff inside themselves that is manifesting self in another person. And rather than really having primary difficulty with that person, it's there, it's important, it's a big deal, it's significant. It's really more themselves, but the only way they really get a chance to look in the mirror or to do something even more than looking in the mirror, looking at themselves as mirrored through somebody else and appreciating the beauty that is certainly there, but also understanding that when you look at yourself in the mirror, even if you look at yourself in the mirror, if you look at yourself internally, you can cover all that up with denial, hide it away, pretend like it doesn't exist, have a very distorted view of yourself because there's no, again, objective sort of feedback. Looking in the mirror is a bit more challenging because you get a better sense because it's hard to deny. It's right there in front of you. But even then, people can do a bit of distortion or they can do a bit of external sort of covering it up or trying to superficially make themselves to be something else. But the stuff that really challenges you is when you see yourself through the eyes of another. And though we run that risk of that being distorted, this all kind of insidiously so, implicitly so, comes back to, you picked them, you chose the friends, you couldn't pick family, but you chose the friends, but it's all based on you, what you grew up with, what you left your childhood with. Otherwise, why would you even think you could get along with them? You might say, well, that's exciting and all that. But for anybody who maybe has put their toe in that water, <clears throat> yeah, it's exciting. But at the same time, it's usually oil and water kind of stuff. They can coexist, but it's not very easy to maintain that. And there's always going to be these two parts that just really never become a we. So, yeah... Maybe to the extent of an extreme, you could do something like that, somebody completely different, but most of us don't. And within that, again, the range of differences, it may be more the continuum, each opposite end of the continuum as manifested or shown through that dynamic of the lens of mom and dad, mom and mom, dad and dad, the parent dyad. You've got some familiarity. And in some ways, it juxtaposes too. When somebody's this way, your significant other may be this way, you may be on that same sort of continuum to the other side and vice versa. But the calibration of that, the working it out, the becoming a we, it's a skill set. And it's this paradigm, this model, this way of looking at it that I'm attempting to communicate today on the podcast that helps. I frame all of that work that I do in couples counseling, in relationship counseling, from this paradigm, this model, because I think it's not only very adaptive, I mean, very adaptive, it's really adaptive, but at the same time, it's really or very useful because it helps them to understand if you hate that in another person, there's a good chance that that's in you. And if you hate it in them, just because you're seeing it come out, 
you probably, if you could see it come out in relationship to you, you probably are not going to like it in you, and then take it one step further, it's probably going to take you back to your childhood. It's probably one of those sort of, again, I use the word insidious, you're, you're kind of born into it. You didn't really get much say about it on the front end because it was just something through social learning, modeling, imitation, you acquired. But it doesn't mean you can't, <clears throat> excuse me, modify it or change it. It just means you have to not hate it and have to realize there's some advantage to working on it. You could try to work on it in yourself, but again, you let yourself off the hook through defense mechanisms, especially if it's really threatening. You don't want to see it. That's the predicate of a defense mechanism. There's something in it that's scary. The more threatening, and if it's tied to, again, neglect, abandonment, abuse, real trauma dimension stuff of childhood, then the only way you're going to see it, the only way you're going to really stay with it without it kind of going into either denial, compartmentalization, disassociation, is to see it in that relationship with others. But if we practice the intentioned effect of love, we're going to work through it, we're going to view it positively, we're not going to see it as something adversarial, we're going to try to embrace it to the extent that we can understand it. We, 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 myself included, but if it remains an I, we're just going to bang into each other. It's going to be oil and water kind of stuff. I want to take a moment, remind our listeners, you're listening to, my listeners, you're listening to Word with Dave Clay. So how do you get past that? Well, we begin to talk about it. We begin to make such statements as, this is all about the eyes becoming more completely or perfectly a we. Not to the loss of I or self, but to the acknowledgement of there's two of you. And you may not realize it yet, you're much more alike than you are different. And you may not realize it yet, but if you hate that part of that person that's causing you all this conflict, you chose them it's probably because that's a model in your mind of what relationships through socialization is, are supposed to look like. You probably have that in you. Has it manifested itself? No, maybe there was no other person, again on that continuum, who represented that one extreme to drive you to reactively so the other side. But whether it's this or any other thing in counseling, we do not want to just be reactive. It seems adaptive and probably in that way of genuine, again, threat, life and limb threat, being reactive saves you. Fight it, run away from it, do anything you can to escape it. But that kind of reactive thinking or operating out of that mode with that lack of real true understanding of what this all represents, not embracing this sort of view of what this is all about, you're not going to probably work through it. You're probably going to end up either <laughs> divorcing, leaving one another, hopefully not killing one another, 
uh, harming one another, but a lot of abuse comes from that. It never justifies physical, emotional abuse. Uh, a lot of narcissism, again, has come from that type of a scenario. It's passed down generation to generation, progressively worsening in subsequent expression, <laughs> generation to generation. This has to stop. We have to stop being emotionally reactive and begin to consider this in more intellectual terms. It makes perspective taking, understanding the other person's thoughts as much as common feelings, much easier. <laughs> they really are thinking more like you, where there's more opportunity for you to see how they're thinking like you, than it is that they're in their own world. Where are they at? Unless they're delusional. And certainly there's some folks that like that, but most couples, relationship counseling, scenarios, situations, encounters, that's not the case. But to sell people on this idea <laughs> tells me more than anything else just how narcissistic they are. And yes, again, it tends to polarize you and put you maybe defensively into more self-protective mode, which moves you more, if there ever was a we or there are points of we, to more I posturing. But we have to stop that. We have to call that out and say, wait a minute, where's the we in this? Wait a minute, where's the common dimensions in this? And I do that. I try to strategically do that uh, throughout the counseling, the intervention, throughout the sessions. Uh, I try to begin with that. I try to every session end with that. It's important to continue to kind of shape or construct whatever they are, not what I think they should be, but what they show themselves to be, what they tell me they want to be, as a we. It works better. You get more progress, and there's the social dimension. You can't do it singularly because we're social creatures. Everything is predicate upon, predicate upon, or based upon a relationship dynamic. Two, <laughs> going to the mall and looking at people, all the diversity, all of that that goes into being different. Some more appealing than others, some along the lines of your narrative, what you want your life to be, to mean, some not so much. But it's all enjoyable, not to mention entertaining. But it requires you to do more than just look in the mirror or absent a mirror, just imagine what you are. Or even looking in the mirror, try to superficially put on something that really doesn't represent what you are. Many would say, even if you looked at it just more clinically, that we're all after unconditional love. <laughs> but the only way you're going to get it is to not only see yourself and others for what they are, but learn to apply it. Which doesn't mean that you're just conceding everything or not continuing to grow or mature. You're just actually creating, as with the counseling, the intervention, the best environment to foster growth. <laughs> we can call each other out on it. We can do corrections. Uh, we can do modifications. Again, we can reaffirm the narrative, the goals, the objectives, where you guys want to end up, how you want it to look. It's all your choice, not mine. It's your choice. But to get there, to make the modifications, to overcome maybe the trauma even, 
to get past the compartmentalization, that defense mechanism, even if with extremes of disassociation, creating an environment, a commitment to unconditional love of others and self is the ideal. In that is true liberty. If not, then you're just being reactive. <laughs> you can't make a choice if you're too busy just reacting. That means somebody else is triggered, which is really then not liberty, which is then you're not really making the choice. You do make a choice, but it's not a response, a choice to respond intentioned in a particular way. It's mostly out of fight or flight, and then with that kind of thinking, it's cloudy. It's not with the best in mind. The insight, the awareness, the rationality, the higher cortical function, the logic, the reasoning, the hypothetical deductive model, empiricism, science, research, all the good things, highest order of human operation, cognitively, mentally, as it represents a huge portion of psychology, psychologically, and as it affects your physiological function. Even as we've talked about it today on the podcast, it comes back to, at times, the most adaptive elements of not only quantity of life, but quality of life. It's all connected. <laughs> but we're all a bunch of individual parts. We begin with we's. We move to I's in terms of development, only to then understand. We have to become a we. <laughs> we have to reconnect. You can't remain an I. It doesn't work. And if they buy into that, the folks that come see me, then what I can do is I can begin to help them understand that learning to love self is really about learning to love others or learning to love self perfectly or unconditionally is learning then how to love others perfectly, unconditionally, and truly, pragmatically with some reality base. <laughs> it's factual. And I think within the context of what I've been sharing on the podcast today, the truth is you're going to do it better if you can do it in concert with another and maybe even allowing that to lead you. Don't think about what you're going to get out of it. Try to think about what the other person is realizing if any of this is true, majority of this is true, if you love them, <laughs> help them get better, it's going to then automatically make your life better. And even if you should leave, flee the circumstance, run from it, you're still gonna have to do this. Because <laughs> this is really the only way you get this highest, most elegant level of change, refinement. <laughs> Abraham Maslow, this is the only really true way to self-actualization. It's to know good love, <laughs> and then as much as you're loved, to practice that with others and then work out the rest of the details, because the rest of the details are just that, superficial. That's the trouble with narcissism as well as with this article, sexual relationships. You don't get any contentment or satisfaction out of that. You, know, you might fulfill some lust. 
You might fulfill some sort of primary drive. It might feel good in terms of immediate gratification. Probably going to have a lot of uh, excitement, energy, adventure attached to it, which isn't bad. But if you're really looking for the complete, the whole experience, the enhancement, you don't want it to just be object relations, superficial. You want it to be individual to individual, eye to eye, becoming a we, person to person to becoming a them. You can continue to move in and out of that. That's also going to be part of it. You'll have other aspects of your life that that primary other will not be significant other, may not be a part of, but you'll always come home to the we. It grounds us. And if you extend that to family, if you teach your kids that by exposing them, not only socialization to like the superficial, more superficial aspects of relationship, but this core belief and affirmation, encouragement, all those things that go into unconditional love, genuine positive regard, <laughs> being nice, being kind, encouraging, being there to support when they need you the most, a shoulder to cry upon, all of that, then they're going to likely have greater chances. It's going to translate into a higher probability that that's the partner they're going to pick. Now, sometimes they go find somebody who's really needing that, but if they do that even, doesn't mean that there's, again, at core, much difference, because in some ways, this is a universal sort of premise. We all need that love, but they're still going to have the strength and the support system to help people. And isn't that also kind of a nice thought? You don't even have to go out and love somebody who's like you. Go out and love somebody who's not like you. But don't let that discourage or dissuade you from holding on to what your strength is and the support system that's been there to help you have that to accomplish that self-actualization. So, whether you go to the mall, <laughs> whether, whether you go into a clothing store, look at the mirrors, or whether you see that in the context of sexual, marital, job, occupational relations, uh, loving other people is an aspect of loving self. It's just the better way. If we want an antidote to <laughs> the scourge, if that's what it is, the plague, uh, of narcissism that seems to be filling our world today, the selfishness that makes us all a bunch of eyes and like oil and water banging into each other rather than learning how to really become a we. Maybe we need to change how we think about things and put other people first. <laughs> you know, I can't fault narcissus for wanting to love himself. I can't fault a narcissist for wanting to love him or herself. I can't fault me or you for wanting to love myself, but I can't do it singularly, solitarily of myself. I need to do that in relationship. Uh, and not all of us get to pick and choose our parents or what we grew up with, but we do have a chance to pick and choose our partners. And should we, unfortunately, or maybe it's fortunate, who's going to work with you? <laughs> go out there usually and find somebody who's already finished and you're so far behind, there's still a lot of work in that. 
But finding somebody who's close to where you are, that's within the range as far as opportunities, aptitudes to continue to grow and develop, to consummate not only your skill at loving other people unconditionally, which I do think is, again, implicitly the base human nature, our social nature when we're born with innocence, is to love that way. It's just, it doesn't take but maybe a minute. Uh, possibly hour, a few days, and then all of a sudden we're starting to realize just how messed up the world is. Even if we can't conceptualize it till we get to that age of awareness, we're being exposed and conditioned through just exposure, that exposure to it. But when they come see me, I just remind them, you can make a choice. There's power in that choice. And it's not only power based on good intentions or just some sort of ideology or ideological idea, notion of something high-ordered. If you do it, it works best. (laughs) I can say that because I'm trained in it. I've studied it. And not only have I studied it, I've applied it in my practice. And I see successes based on that. Not that you can't divorce Not that you can't maybe never get married. Not that you can't choose to leave someone. Not that people can't become so dangerous or toxic you have to leave them. Not that the abuse can't be so bad that it's foolish in so many ways, tragic to stay there. I'm just saying if you've got a choice and you've got somebody who wants to work with you and is showing at least some inclination to look at themselves and grow with you, There's a lot to be gained by staying, not leaving. People should not be expendable. (laughs) should run the risk of becoming like narcissists, a narcissist, and finally come to the conclusion, well, there's nobody out there that can love me quite the way I love me. And then realizing, as we've talked about it today on the podcast, that's really all just a bunch of (laughs) self-lies. You've created a persona that you've put on like you put on clothes, like you change your hairstyle, uh, like you get a new tattoo, whatever it is, you've really not changed your heart. And for me, psychology is still about those kind of soul heart experiences, changing the personality so that we're doing it out of not only an understanding intellectually, but in concert with our emotions And with that, then, a real appreciation for the quality as much as the quantity of what one's life is. Again, you're listening to Word with Dave Clay. I'm always appreciative of the chance to bring it to you, bring this podcast to you, this information, it, the information, the podcast to you. The article today was The Power of We by Grant H. Brenner in the... June edition of Psychology Today 2022. We do this once a week, even if I have laryngitis. We do this once a week and uh, certainly would want to invite you back to our next podcast. In the meantime, I wish you genuinely, truly, not only good health, but ultimately good mental health.